Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. I don't know what you think about when you hear the name Essie Knives or the name Randall Adventure Training, but I can assure you that they are two of the most respected names in the industry of bushcraft and survival. Hey there, this is Craig Cottle, Director of Nature Reliance School, and I had a fantastic opportunity to sit down with Mr. Shane Adams of Essie and Randall, and it was a great conversation. We started off talking about the unique path that Shane took to get to Essie and Randall, We then got into the business of knives and getting steel and supply chain issues that everybody's dealing with right now. We briefly talked about survival shows and we focused a lot of attention on actual education and how that goes about and how they do things at Randall Adventure Training. Hey, and I did ask Shane what his favorite book was and guess what? He did not have an answer for me because he reads a lot. And it's hard to have a favorite book when you read a lot, but his answer to the question was fantastic and it was a learning opportunity for myself, and I'm sure you will get a lot out of it as well. I also asked my requisite questions that I ask everybody, what's the funniest thing that he's experienced in the outdoors? That answer is going to surprise you from Shane. And I asked him his most humbling moment in the outdoors. And as usual, he comes off with a very, very good conversation. And I, it's, I don't know what to say. I just enjoyed the conversation. I learned a lot from Shane, and I'm sure you're going to too. Here is Mr. Shane Adams. All right, Shane Adams, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for being here. Yeah, man, I'm glad got uh, glad I got you on. So we're going to do uh, for everybody listening. We're probably going to talk to Patrick a little bit later, but today we're talking with Shane Adams from SE and Randall's Adventure Training, and uh, we'll get two good perspectives from these guys. I think so. Glad you're here, man. Yeah, hey, man, I'm, I'm tickled to be here. So the big question, the first question, should be. Shane Adams, how did you get to where you are right now with SE rat training? How does, how did all that come about? How long is this supposed to be? (laughs) An hour total, but if it goes two, we'll make it a two-parter. How's that? Okay. Okay. (laughs) So I kind of have a philosophy in life is that I fail forward. And so I have been a high school teacher and coach. I did a business plan for a bicycle shop when I was 14 years old. I've been a cyclist since I was 13 and, um, uh, that dream became a reality August 1st, 2007, uh, about nice. six, six months before the economy crashed. And, and so wow. I, I live hmm. in Dalton, Georgia, which is the uh, uh, the carpet capital of the world, the floor covering capital of the world. So when the housing crisis uh, hit, we were the first into recession and the last out as far as a local economy. I struggled for about nine and a half years. And then finally, I just had to wipe my hands of it. But before that happened, I had kind of gotten into doing some competitive shooting and had gotten into some some self-defense and some other stuff. And uh, I was doing a lot of, uh, not a lot, but some of uh, more endurance type events, long, very uh, remote bike rides and some other stuff. And I had a couple different situations where uh, without the grace of God and, and some good luck, we would have uh, ended up in a real bad situation. And I felt like it would probably be in my best interest to get some additional training for survival training. Uh, I live in Dalton. I didn't know it, but Patrick Rollins lives in Dalton. We, and we kind of <laughs> met up uh, 
just by happenstance. Uh, I started training with the guys at Essie and uh, Randall's, and um, I got to, you know, I, and it, it just kind of evolved in a really organic way that I got to meet Jeff and got to hang out with Patrick, and, and then. Um, so was Patrick teaching for Randall? Oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. He was. Okay. He, he came on staff in thirteen, okay. full time. And so I don't know, man. It was just kind of weird. And uh, uh, one day, um, and this is before I decided to close the shop, really. But I was kind of teetering. I had realized that the window for, for viability was closing, and I was trying to think about where to go next. And all I could think about was I run the best failing business I know. You know, we did a lot of things right. We did a lot of things right, except make money, uh, which is kind of important in a business. And, but anyway, I got a phone call from Jeff Randall. He said, hey, I'm going to make the two and a half hour drive over to your shop and buy a couple of bikes from you. And, and uh, I said, well, sure, come on. Through the course of that conversation that day, he just kind of looked at me and he said, um, he, I remember he said, he said, Shane, you, you've, uh, you've done a really good job. You create a really good business here. And I said, well, I appreciate that. I said, but you're wrong. I've created culture and I've created community, but I haven't really created a business. And I'm, I've, I'm considering doing something different. And he said, well, if you do something different, I want a resume and we need to talk. And I said, well, we're talking now. Nice. <laughs> and, nice. And, uh, nice. and so uh, about a month later, uh, Mike came down from Knoxville and Jeff and Wendy came over and we sat down in my bike shop and, uh, hammered out a deal. And, and then that was, uh, well, December 23rd of 2016 is when I closed the shop and I started working February 1st of 2017 for SC. So this will be five years here. Nice Christmas present. Yeah. Take, yeah. Taking a break from the bike shop right on December 23rd. Yeah. Yeah. We just shut it down and, and, uh, Man, that stuff can be a labor, can it? A labor. I don't know if, uh, it's too cliche to say a labor of love, but if you love something, sometimes it can just be too much work if it's not working. It starts as a labor of love. It ends as a labor of hate for me. Not, well, not yeah. hate, not hate. Um, as men, we tend to fall into the pitfall of we are what we do. And I think we have a crisis of conscience and a crisis of identity whenever we cease to do something that we consider as who we are. And and so that shop was eating me alive. It was eating my family alive. If you would have asked me then, are you stressed? I would have said no. Uh, you know, almost five years later, I was stressed all the time. You right. know, it's like asking a drowning man if he wants to drink water. You know, I mean, right. that was it, it, it's uh, it's tough. It gives me a unique perspective, I think, in business when it comes to SE, when it comes to Randall's and what we do is I've experienced both sides of the equation as far as sure. what it looks like, you know, good P&Ls and bad P&Ls. But also it's one of the reasons why customer service remains so important to me to make sure that our customers have the ability to reach out and touch someone from the factory and from the company that, that can really give them most of the time a fairly definitive answer on things mm-hmm. and, and, and take in and take action if we need to. So it sounds like that community and culture you built over there, you're building right there where you are now, which is, which is a great thing. It, well, I inherited something. I built that from scratch. Yeah. I walk, I walked into, I think quite possibly one of the best, best situations I could have with Essie as far as, uh, you know, none of those guys want to do social media. They want, you know, they just want to go in their basements or workshops and, and that's what they do and how their mind works. And so mm-hmm. we had, we had, I, I believe a very loyal contingent of folks that were dying for a, for a touchstone or at least an access point to the company. And, and that's kind of what I've become. Nice. And so you're involved with the training side of it pretty regularly. I mean, you're in the field a lot too, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, my official title is marketing director slash utility player. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't do anything well, uh, but I do a little bit of everything. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably one of my greatest assets to the company is I can, I can fill a lot of different roles. Um, we've been out about between 150 and 170 days this year between our Reynolds Adventure training, between RATSAR training, that's our search and rescue team, and then also live missions. I think we are up to 34 or 35 live missions this year for search and rescue. I did not realize you all were that busy with that side of things. God, it's ex- that's incredible. It's exploded. We've, yeah. we've, res- we've responded to calls from Virginia all the way down into Mississippi. So yeah, we're busy. So uh, a lot of experience in various aspects of this industry, if you will. 
one question I always like to ask people is what do you think the, the piece of gear is that everybody should have besides an SE knife? <laughs> I don't, know. Hey man, I don't care what you carry. Just make sure you know how to use it. I'm going to, I'm going to take off my marketing director hat and uh-huh. then say, say something I probably shouldn't, but it's true. And knowledge is free. I think our entire industry is they're like a raccoon. They want the next little shiny thing, you know? And so they're gear driven and we should be skill driven. If we're not hungry for knowledge and not actively pursuing knowledge and the, uh, and, and have the desire to expand our skill set, ought to be greater than to expand our gear collection. The more you know, the less you carry. And, right. and like I say, so to me, if you're not investing in what's between your ears, I guess I think you're throwing good money after bad in that sense. Yeah, this is one of the reasons uh, I wanted you on because we have very similar opinions on that matter. Very similar opinions. It's uh, I think it's critical that we get that word out to more people. Yeah, um, and it's 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 counterculture, man. I mean, it's it's oh, man, counter it it's counterintuitive, but one of the things that um, that I pride myself on and and why I relate so well to Jeff and Mike is that. We're going to be honest to a fault. And to me, it doesn't get more honest than that is that if you're not investing in your skill set, then you're doing yourself a disservice. You know, and I I just thought of a question uh, that I should bring up that not all of our listeners probably know who Jeff and Mike are. Would you care to tell everybody who that is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, I do, but I just I want them to know, too. Jeff Randall and Mike Perrin are the co-founders of Randall's Adventure Training and ultimately SE Knives. And what a lot of people don't know, and I'll give you the the nickel tour here, is that we started Randall's Adventure Training first. And and Jeff and Mike were doing uh, jungle survival training down in the Peruvian jungle in the Amazon started with the Peruvian Air Force, and then they started bringing uh, private people down. Uh, jungle survival, escape, and evasion, that was in the early 90s, uh, early to mid-90s. Uh, it started with the junk with the Air Force because their soldiers were getting shot down by the cartel members, and they had to know how to get out of the woods. We rocked along there for a while. Uh, they couldn't find tools that they liked, so they designed some very simple knives, um, tools. I mean, that's how we view all of our stuff. And had some small custom makers make them. And then as the training evolved, the knives evolved, we made more tools, more gear, more products that we felt like there was. I mean, they didn't design it because there was a space in the market. They designed it because they needed it. We're very, very pragmatic as a company. And it's easy. If you meet Jeff or Mike, then it's easy to see, you know, where, I mean, it doesn't take long to figure out why. And then we moved training stateside. Uh, we did a deal with Ontario Knife Company, and, and that was where the rat cutlery line comes from. During that time, they also designed the rat folder for Ontario. And after about five years, we decided to break off, go our own way. We hooked up with Rowan. It's been pretty much it ever since. That was our early 2000s, 2001 that we formulated Essie and, and then have since gone down that path. We literally backed into the knife industry. Yeah, the training came first, and and that the knives were born out of that training. And, and which honestly, I think is a good evolution from my well, perspective. I think it's a great evolution. Well, I'll be honest with you, man. We're you know in our eyes, we're still a training company first. And I'm a marketing director. I don't own a desk. I spend roughly 170 days in the field. That part of it is it's the the training side of things is still very much our petri dish. It's very very important to us. It's very close. It's very important to us that we stay close to the outside in the dirt, get that dirt time. Cause yep. that's where, I mean, so many of our products are designed around a campfire or, or sketched out on a napkin, in a, you know, normally in a cracker barrel or a waffle house somewhere uh, going to, or coming off a mission. And um, that's, that's, that's our office. So you've mentioned some of these a little bit, but let's go into a little bit more detail as, as it relates to your specific positions, marketing director, um, what was the other term you used? Clutch player? What no, was? utility player. Utility player. Yeah, utility yeah. player uh, at, with SE and Randall's. What's what's the big challenge for you? I mean, when you when you go to work every week or maybe even every day, what's the challenge you think, man, I've, I've got to figure out how to make this work or this, this is difficult? Mm-hmm. Or is that an attitude you don't foster or allow to happen? No, no. I, it's, definitely, it's, it's definitely, well, so I – this is going to sound kind of hinky maybe to some, but it's true. What I struggle with is um, I go back to that. The identity crisis of, of most men is we are what we do. 
And, and ultimately, I try to be a husband and a father first. Uh, and then, like, my job and my company is very important to me, but my family has to come first. I struggle, and I think that that search for balance is something that we all struggle with. That's my biggest, uh, I guess the biggest hitch in my giddy up is I love what I do. I, I love, I mean, I love getting out there, getting after it. But when I'm home, I want to be home. And it sometimes there are phases, like I'm already looking towards 2022, man. And we're just like, bam, bam, bam. We're book, 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 all the way into the fall of 2022. And, and dates are filling up and, and um, it's tough to find that balance. You know, for us as a company, pretty easy, man. Whenever you just say, we're just going to be honest with, about stuff, we don't, hide, we don't have to hide anything. So I'm from, so with you, man. I am so a, with you. A, there, there's no substitute for the power of a clear conscience. Work-wise, we all say what we think, and we let the chips fall. And, and so, so it's, it's awesome to work for a company that has that sense of self to where we don't have to put on airs. We don't have to do certain. We don't have to worry about how is this going to affect our marketing. It's just, hey, it is what it is. Sure. Now, how is this, this, uh, this stuff that is commonly referred to as supply chain management and, uh, supply issues and boats that are possibly sitting out in the ocean and can't get to our shores and all that? How is that affecting what it is that you all do, particularly at SE, obviously, because of the knife manufacturing? It's, it's significant, but it's, it's not any one thing. It's, we're playing whack a mole daily, weekly. As soon as you, you know, put out one fire, you got two more that pop up. Now, here's something else that a lot of people don't understand, too, is for whatever reason, COVID has driven demand for our product up through the roof. So, you know, like I'm pretty close to the cycling industry still. You know, when COVID first hit, you couldn't find a bicycle. Bicycle shops, no bikes. And they're just now getting bikes in, but there is a supply chain issue. Not to interrupt you, but I, I think I need to. You feel as if that's unrelated to supply chain issues. That's a COVID thing that that helped accelerate that purchasing or something of that nature. It, absolutely, it, it it was for whatever reason demand for our product increased. Maybe people had money and they were. I mean, like let's face it, we've all probably spent a lot of time shopping on our computer for the last going on two years now. Mm -hmm. You know, right. so we've had a lot of time to kill. Boredom sets in. Maybe you don't have a whole lot to look forward to. So I'm going to buy that knife I've always wanted to buy. But evidently, there's been a lot of people with that philosophy because our demand has just just gone through the roof. Now you add to that real issues, trying to get steel. Trying to get trying to get something, you know, the Rowan manufacturing facilities in Idaho Falls. So it's way over here in this part of the country. You get a lot of our steel from the Northeast. That's an issue. Right. Trying to get them from A to B. The heat treat for we do everything at Rowan in house, except for heat treat on our stainless steel. That ha that's a whole different process. Has to go out. It's in California. California's right. open, California's closed. California's open, yeah. California's closed. The place we use, they have a hundred people. They close. They come back, they have sixty people. They oh, close man. again. They come back, they have thirty people. They come back, they have twenty people. You know, and, and so, like it or not, uh, and we're not alone in this. This has affected uh, the cycle that we're seeing with increased demand and then decreased supply. <laughs> on top of labor, labor's man, we would. We could work three shifts if we could find people to work. I mean, like there is no shortage for jobs, wow. but uh, we can't get people to work. I know the Rowans are working harder and working better and more efficient than they ever have. Um, but there's only, I mean, there's only so many hours in the day and only so much you can do. And the orders just keep piling in, which we're grateful right. for. But like a lot of people in our industry, you know, what's your wait time or, you know, when, when will I get this? And you're like, as soon as we can, as soon as we can, you know, cause we don't, what we don't want to do is, is I'd rather under promise and over deliver than over promise and come up short. So, so we're trying to communicate with our dealers and be as forthcoming as we can. I got people hitting me up. Hey, did y'all discontinue this or did you, we ain't discontinued nothing. We just can't right. get it. You know, we just, right. and, and our dealers are saying they're clamoring for more and we're just putting it out as best we can. That makes two questions come up to me. Number one, Rowan, 
uh, and forgive me, I'm not real familiar with the knife business and how all that mm-hmm. plays out. Is Rowan a company that builds several different knives for different companies or just your all's knives? Are they primarily focused on you guys? So Rowan is a awesome group of folks in Idaho Falls and they got their, they're, they're a machine shop and they got their start making high performance parts for snow machines. They make virtually all of our fixed blade knives. We are for the most part, their only customer. We are two separate businesses. We have been close business partners from day one and will remain that way. They are an integral part of who we are, what we do. Um, Let's just say we're in a committed relationship. Gotcha. All right. Question number two that popped off that. And this is, I guess, personally me, maybe other people wouldn't have this question, but heat treating. I've always heard this, but I've never asked anybody. I'm asking you the first person I want to ask. Why is there only so many places to do heat treat? Is that such a hard process to do? that just lots of people can't do it in, on a mass scale or what, what's happening there? Yes. The answer is yes. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's that simple. Like we all have kitchens in our home and a lot of our kitchens have a lot of the same ingredient, but the products that come out of every kitchen are all vastly different. So just because one metal is 1095 and another metal is 1095 doesn't mean they're going to perform the same. In fact, you can take our knife, and if we increase the rock well this way or that way or did something a little different, it will vastly change the performance of the knife. So if I, I used to build a lot of uh, custom wheels for bicycles, and I used to say people used to kind of be enamored with the fact that I could lace a wheel up. You know, I could lace a front wheel or a back wheel, and, and they're like, man, that's cool. And I was like, really, you could train a monkey to do that part. The mechanical procedure of just putting rim and hub and spokes and nipples together. Anybody can learn that. The magic happens is when you true it intentionally. That magic part of the knife making is really in the heat treat. Like it is absolutely critical. Right. So, so, so I'm assuming guys like you all, whether it's SE or whatever knife manufacturer, they probably have that one or, well, they might have that one heat treat plant that, oh man, they know how to work our knives or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so everybody yeah. knows that they're good. So everybody's, they're in high demand, that heat treat plant. Oh yeah. And, and they're having the same issues too. Their issues yeah. are, are people, people. That's, that's right. one of our, one of our greatest commodities right now that we're lacking in this country, I think is people that are willing to go to work and, and do what yeah. needs to be done. Man, it's so true. And again, just cause I'm not familiar with it is, um, forgive me if these are silly questions, but, uh, heat treating is a process that happens to a lot of things, not just knives. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, it happens in a lot of, a lot of, uh, different parts of the auto industry beyond knives. Uh, I mean, heat treating is a fairly important part of, of the gun manufacturing process. You got any, anytime you need hardened metals for whatever task tools, whatever else, it's all part mm-hmm. of it. All right. Switching gears a little bit. Survival shows. Mm-hmm. Can, we, can we learn anything from them? I think if, with the right mindset, we can always learn something, whether it be learning what not to do, how not to act, what's done. I mean, if you can't learn from other people's mistakes, then, then, then we're not really learning effectively. With that being said, I think some of them are for pure entertainment, but I have I have seen some people and I, I have met some people that I have a lot of respect for that have true skill. Um, I think I think real can recognize real. And if you have any skill, you can see people on there that are highly skilled. I, I love watching shows like Alone or Naked and Afraid and, and trying to make that first pass of who's going to cut, and who's going to leave, you know, who's going to cut and run sure. and who's going to stay. Uh, and, and, and we do the same thing in some of our classes and we get surprised sometimes, but you can also, yep. you know, you, you, you've been around long enough to where you see people come in with bravado, talking a big game and they're the first to punch out that happens. You see some people that come in talk a big game and they deliver. So I would never say that you can't learn from those things. I think there are better ways to learn at times that to me is going to someone that, that has true skill. And it doesn't have to be an instructor. I learned so much from my grandfather. He right. was a, tool and die maker. He was a machinist. He was a, he was a farmer, man. That dude could do anything. I used to just be mesmerized by watching his hands and how he worked things. And and so I think you can learn from just about anywhere. If you look for the opportunity to learn. So as far as basic skills, you mentioned, uh, not just gear, but focusing on skills too. I like mm-hmm. to ask these skills questions too. the typical person that you're seeing in Randall training. Well, let's, let's look at this as a two part question. What do you think's the most missing skill set for your typical person that's an outdoorsman? When I say an outdoors person, maybe a 
maybe a hunter, a backpacker, even a day hiker or something of that nature. What do you think's missing? And tell me more about what happens in a typical Randall class. Any one okay. of them or all of them that you want to talk about. Okay. I'm, I'm going to go back to, uh, to answer your first part of your question. What's missing from most of our people or where are we, where are we falling short? I think, uh, number one, it goes back to mindset. It goes back to everybody wants to think they're going to, they're going to perform a certain way when they get hit in the mouth with a bad situation. But, it, but if you've never been hit in the mouth, you're not really sure. Sure. And so, so I know you're big into martial arts. If we don't voluntarily get hit in the mouth sometimes and putting ourselves, I'm a big believer in you need to, you need to get comfortable with uncomfortable situations. When you get used to being uncomfortable and to a higher than average bit of misery at times, uh, if you're into martial arts or you're into maybe even working out really hard, like learning to be comfortable with discomfort is a huge part of being able to work through a bad situation or a survival situation. It's an absolute skill. I've seen guys that can make fire that can have all these different skills, but they're weak between the ears. So, so mental fortitude to me is absolutely paramount in what we do. Um, I have two boys that are 18 and 20. And I have another young man that lives with us that's 19 as well. I've tried to expose my sons to hard things because I want them to be hard men, you know? So that to me is, is where that's where the root of success in a survival situation is, is in your mindset and in your mental outlook. It's in how you view the problem. If you just fold under pressure, then it does, your skill set doesn't matter. If you can't perform, None of it matters. So none of your gear matters. None of none of your skills matter. That's you know you've acquired in your backyard under ideal situation. If you never go out in adverse conditions, if you never challenge yourself, if you don't know what it feels like to be uncomfortable, to be cold, to be certain things, then it's going to make everything that much harder. And that's something that as a society we generally avoid. We avoid discomfort and we move towards comfort. We move towards whatever makes us feel better. You know that's a problem to me. I think we're getting to to where that seems to be the most attractive choice for us as a society culture. It's just getting, I don't want to say worse, but it is what it is in that we seem to be um, moving more and more to let's be more comfortable. And it's it's the standard that's put up in front of us is this is the one that we should be achieving is a life of comfort. And I think we need to be looking for a life of discomfort, finding comfort in uncomfortable situations, as you stated. Yeah, well, I think... Uh... I agree with you as a, as a species and definitely as a nation, we are moving to a softer and softer place to fall. But if we don't willfully and intentionally put ourselves in bad situations at times, not bad situations, but just being uncomfortable, you do a swift water rescue class and you're maybe you're cold and shivering for a couple hours. I'm, I'm not in, I'm not severe hypothermia, but I'm learning to figure out, I might be in early stages here, you know, and you start feeling the effects of maybe a little fogginess and clarity, uh, lack of clarity. You're like, oh, I need to sharpen up here. I need to pay more attention. But I know how I know how I perform in certain situations because I've chosen to put myself in, in a controlled environment oftentimes to experience some discomfort so that I better perform and know what to expect from myself should the time ever come that I actually need those skills. What was your second question? I don't know. I got a better one anyway. Okay. Um, let, let's move on to this one because our foundation of everything we do is mindset, skills, tactics, and gear. We call it the four puzzle pieces of survival. Mm -hmm. Those four things. So I'm I'm on board with you 110% there. My question for you is, well, first question is, are your classes usually two or three days? Your weekend classes? Oh, you, you asked me what's a what's a regular class for us. That's yeah, what yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we offer a wide variety of classes from one day up to five days. Uh, we offer your basic survival classes, bushcraft classes, land nav classes. And then we do a lot of rope rescue, high angle rescue, single rope technique. We do an awesome wilderness first responder class. I think it's probably one of the best wilderness first responder classes that you can take because you spend some a very small amount of time in the field. You have to do about 25 hours pre-course work before you show up. And then we are putting you like you're going to know what it's like to do medicine in the wilderness when you're done. The culminating process of that is is we'll have you out overnight doing medical scenarios. So you'll be doing you'll be working through the night in the dark, 
challenged in a lot of different ways. We think it's important that people kind of have to walk through that. I mean, that to me is a very much a clarifying exercise is you need to know what it's like to perform when you're sleep deprived and you're hungry or you're cold or wet or whatever. I agree. All right. Now the question that came up with listening to you talk is, is, uh, as, as far as a one, three or five day class, how do you teach mindset development? We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the fire maple backpacking and camping stove system. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part? It's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Depends on the class. Some classes develop it more than others. Like our field survival class, we drill at home in a lot of different ways. Our field survival class is our hardest class. It's kind of what we're known for, but we only teach about one or two a year. Um, it's something we harp on a lot, but I used to tell my students this in the classroom, is that I can take all the knowledge out of my head and pour it out on the table. What you choose to pick up is entirely up to you. I can't, I can't make you pick this up and run with it. So all people are doing when they come to us is they're getting a direction and a, and a course, how they choose to develop that afterwards. It's just not on us. That's on them. Like that, the onus of them developing that mindset is on them. Now they want to keep, I mean, I don't want to sound like a pyramid scheme, but it is something that after you take a few different classes from us, you begin to see how that evolves. When you go with us on a, on a search, and here's a practical application for that. Very practical. I love the people I work with. I love the people in our search and rescue team because we're different. And I mean, we're different. I understand. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that in a braggadocious way, but we're different. And when it's raining and cold, we're cracking jokes. Right. We're, you know, we're not looking at our shoes. We're not, you know, bitching and moaning. We're, di- we're, we're doing what we have to do. We're ripping on each other, you know, and people like what's I get chill bumps. Can you see that? Yeah, man. Chill bumps. Because people see it. People see it. And and people that are outside and want it, they become our people. People that are like, whoa, not me. Right. They go away. You know, right. they go away. It, it cracks me up. We were doing a search earlier this year. It's actually Father's Day for a young girl who was five who just vanished. And, and what I, I'll be honest with you, man, I didn't want to go to this search. Didn't want to go. I want to be, we had been on a big travel block and I had been home with, I hadn't been home. I've been coming home, dumping out a bag into the washer, into the dryer, back into the bag and leaving again. I know you can relate. You know, I got a call out at about two 30 in the morning and I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. But then I thought about what that father must feel like on father's day, wondering where his daughter's at. I was like, nah, I got to go. People that know us, I mean, they know us uh, in in the incident command and search and rescue. And to be honest with you, we normally get the missions that nobody else wants. And so sure enough, we got the mission that nobody wanted because it was hard. We took on, I guess, six or seven other people that weren't on our team. And we were team lead. And then we executed the mission. In the process, we had a few people that had to pull out because they realized that they weren't where they needed to be. Uh, and we don't try to, I mean, we're, we're not like hard. I mean, I'm 50, just 57 or 58. I'm in the field all the time with Jeff Randall. That dude's in the field more than anybody I know. Uh, we're not going out there. And I mean, part of search and rescue is very slow, very methodical, but you got to do it right. And, yeah. uh, and we took some people out into deep water. And I'd say all of this to tell you this part of it. The next morning, uh, the the guy that's in charge of operations come and we like our team we had like four or five of us that were right there and he says okay Shane you and your team's here 
And he, he looked over at this guy and he pointed at him. He's like, so-and-so, I'm putting you a rat star today. And the guy went, oh, no. Like, and I was like, I said, stop right there. I said, we don't want him. I said, no. I said, this is not going to be well. And another guy was like, I'll go. I was like, put him on our team. He went with us yesterday. We want him. You know, the guy that said, oh, no, and had this impending sense of doom never went with us the day before. He had not trained and like he's not, he hadn't been in the woods. He did, but he just heard, okay, yeah. they get the hard stuff, you know. And it's like, nope, we don't want him. You don't worry about it. You stay here. You put him somewhere else. We'll take this guy. He wants the guys, right? Guys, like, I'll go, I'll go. I went with him yeah. yesterday. It's like, absolutely, we want this guy. That's yeah. our kind, of, that's your kind of people. That's my man right there. Yeah. And that's not my man. And, and that's okay. Right. There's no, I got no problem with that. You don't want to sure. go put that effort in, just stay over there. Right. And not about that specific, another change in direction here, not about that specific uh, mission that you were on, but people getting lost in the wilderness. What do you feel like? What are you seeing? Is there a trend there? That's the most common mistake that we can, we can share. And hopefully people will listen and not make that mistake is what I'm looking to get to. So, so this past year, we've seen an increase in silver searches um, uh, with dementia, geriatric patients. Once again, thanks COVID, um, you have more people sitting at home. You have more people getting in the woods. A lot of people get out in the deep water pretty quick, and they're obviously unprepared. A lot of people are relying on cell phones too much that may or may not serve their purpose. What happens when they run out of service? I, I think if we could tell someone uh, of your, your people and our people are normally going to be a little more squared away. But for the for those people that are just kind of starting out, let somebody know where you're at. Like have a plan, stick to your plan. Let somebody know where you're going and what time they can expect you back. Carry your essential basic survival stuff, like whatever you would need to spend a night in the woods. Now, let's go back to that. I'm not telling you to spend a comfortable night in the woods. I'm telling you to get through a night in the woods, the ability to make shelter fire you know be good to have some water obviously um especially if it's cold uh an extra layer of clothes making sure you're wearing the right footwear take a map and a compass know how to use it or a gps something that will give you some type of of navigational aid but once again and you can carry a gps and a lot of people do but it's a paperweight because they don't know how to use it they don't know what a coordinate is what a utm or a datum or you know they they wouldn't, wouldn't even know how to find it they just got it because the thing is looks cool. I'm doing it for the gram because it looks good in pictures, but they don't sure. know how to use their equipment. So I, I think that's a big significant portion of it. It's just go prepared and then have a plan and, and communicate to others where you're going to be. Now, uh, on the opposite side of that, though, the there's some people that seem to survive lost wilderness situations that might not have had that stuff. 100%. Is there, from your perspective, from your experience, uh, even research, if it's if it comes to that, are there things that you think that are in eight part of some of us that help us? And if so, what is that? Well, it goes back to mindset, first and foremost. I just think some of us are tougher and have a greater will to live. It used not to be that way. There's a restaurant, this little kind of Greasy Spoon restaurant up towards Okoe that has all these pictures of all these men that used to work in that area doing logging and stuff around the <laughs> turn of the century. These guys ate 10, 12,000 calories a day. They have 4% body fat. They are rails, but they are hard, hard men. And you can look at them and tell. And the women are just in a photo. Hard. You can see it in the photo. You can see that. Yeah. And uh, just it's it's hard and and so we're become you know we have all become products of our soft existence uh, and so if we never get out to test our mindset uh and, and test ourselves um, i'm very fortunate in that, that that's kind of i've always been driven in that way i've always been very competitive but not really competing against somebody else as i want to do i feel if i do as good as i can possibly do then it's going to be okay and it doesn't really matter you know because if I'm doing the best I can do and somebody beats me. Well, they, they're just better than me. Um, but if I'm doing what I can do, then it's going to be a pretty good effort. I think too few of us tap into that now. All right. So I got a few uh, fun questions to end up with. If that's okay. okay. Yeah, man. What's the oddest thing you've eaten in survival training, randomly traveling? 
So we've had roasted raccoon, which wasn't near as good as possum chili. Possum I'm from Kentucky. Is that is is roasted raccoon odd? Uh, well, I, it is for a lot of people. Yeah, um, I, I know. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, now, Patrick uh, and Jeff would have a lot of good stories there from the jungle because you eat what you can catch. Yeah. Um, and, and just prior to me, and this is one, I'll, I'll make this quick antidote. Just prior to coming on staff where I started taking over all of our social media stuff, we had gotten a ban from one of the uh, social media platforms because we posted a picture of a sloth being cooked over a fire. Oh man. A, a hairless sloth. Oh, looks, man. looks a lot like a human. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, um, and here's the thing, Jeff didn't think a thing about it, did he? No, no, he, he, he don't understand. He does not understand. And and no. I get that, man. No, no. Like we all have, uh, our barometer. It's funny man. for taking in information, right. but, uh, yeah. So he set the bar pretty, I mean, honestly, they set the bar <laughs> so low for me when I came in, they were so bad on social media and other stuff. It was like, there's only one way up. I mean, that's just, they're just right. go up. All right. So is there, and we don't have to point anybody out in particular. And if you feel like this point, somebody out there, we can avoid this question. I'm okay with it, but is there something ridiculous that somebody's brought to a class you thought i can't believe you brought that to class yeah yeah <laughs> can we talk about it or oh yeah yeah okay yeah. okay go ahead yeah, I, and now I, I was so it's an se5 like yeah. we have we have guys that show up for a bushcraft class with a sharpened pry bar like and yeah, oftentimes right. they're brand new like this guy unwrapped this knife like the day <laughs> before it, it is fresh as a daisy and then you, you start trying to look at them, trying to do feather sticks or a tri stick or something with this sharpened, this boat anchor of a knife. Okay. And they can't do it. And then I hand them like a small knife or even a Swiss army knife, you know, like a small sack farmer or something like that. And it's like, look, that's, that tool has, it. and this goes back to, you know, they call it a tool shed or we have tools. It's like, we have a lot of different tools, you know? That tool that you're using, like you're using a sledgehammer when you ought to be using a finish hammer. Right. So so let's go back and look at that. So I can tell on ourselves on that. That's kind of our, you know, we always look around. You can see like the instructors kind of always look around when we have like a, you know, advanced bushcraft classes, like new guy, new guy, new guy, new guy. Because they're all carrying these like these massive knives. And if some guy, you know, whips out a little skinny, thin neck knife, he's like, he's got, I'm going to watch this guy. He's got skill probably. And it's almost always true. And I love the, uh, the ridiculous, uh, if you had to have one knife, you know, threads and then in a big knife, you know, can do stuff. A little knife can't do it. Like it's all, man, it goes back to here. Uh, whatever right. I've got in my hand is my survival knife. Whatever's in my pockets, if it's a survival knife, if it's a Spyderco folder or whoever else, if it's, you know, my, my big dad's case knife, that becomes my survival knife. I got to sure. know how to get the most out of it. Let's, yep. let's have that discussion. Nobody wants to have that discussion. Though. Yeah. All right. Shane Adams, your favorite book, man. I saw. I that. know it's going to be a hard one, man. So, well, let me ask this question. How often do you read? I, I read a lot. Yeah. Um, I normally have a couple of different books going. Uh, my problem with reading is that when I start a book, I inhale it and I'm a night owl. I've earned these black bags. And so when I start a book, I normally just, just inhale that thing and normally just a couple of days. Uh, some books that I have read over and over again are from Edward Abbey, Ed Abbey. Um, I just, I just, some of his fire on the mountain books. I mean, some of it, he's real famous for monkey rich gang and desert solitaire, but, uh, the guy could turn a phrase and, uh, you know, I like some of the old vagabond, you know, stuff like Kerouac and then also, uh, Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance. You know, I like to ride motorcycles. That's kind of a cool book too. And, um, I don't know, man. I, I just do a lot of read and, and have over the years. I have a whole collection of book. Uh, I've been doing, uh, I read a cool book called Blink recently. That was pretty interesting. I like a lot of Malcolm Gladwell stuff too. Uh, Will Forston, I think is a book, uh, his series, uh, one second after, uh, one day after one year after, I think I got that right. You did three series books. Uh, Angry American stuff, you know, that's kind of in our survival genre. And I haven't read any of his stuff, but I hear it's good. You know, I, I think um, 
I, I'm not too much into that post-apocalyptic stuff, but but what I do like to see is there's characteristics that we of humans have as a society that pretty quickly degrade whenever all bets are off. And what I learned from reading all these guys is that depending on where you, if you're in a rural side of things, things don't happen quite as quick, but they still happen. If you're in the city, get, you know, get right. out. Uh, so I have a pretty broad, oh, uh, uh, John Krakauer, like I use, I, you know, the big mountain stuff and, you know, any book about the Appalachian Trail or climbing or a lot of that stuff, I've just, I've really enjoyed over the years. So what was your favorite thing to do as a kid? What'd you spend a lot of time doing? Sports, Man, outdoors? So I, I grew up playing sports, uh, mm-hmm. played uh, baseball, football, soccer in college. Football uh, up until my sophomore year. And my football coach told me that I was either going to have to play football or ride my bicycle. Uh, I started it. I had a knee injury and when I was 13 and my father uh, is a physical therapist. And, and back then we didn't have the scope. So they had to just lay you open and do the work. Oh man! Mm. And so he bought me mm. a bicycle and I grew up riding road bikes and then got my first mountain bike when I was 17. My parents were pretty strict, kept me on a pretty short leash, but for whatever reason, I get on my bicycle, I'd be gone for hours. They never really cared. And so I live in the North Georgia mountains and we do have mountains in North Georgia and have spent just hours and hours and hours on a bike riding, you know, phenomenal trails, uh, forest service roads, uh, very blessed to be in this area. I, I just love, I just love the Appalachians, you know, and, and, and uh, mm-hmm. it's just such a cool place that we live um, that has its own history, its own allure to it for me. So I was always an outside kid, man. So whether it was on a bicycle or, or hiking or whatever else. Uh, and then for about 20 years, I paddled a whitewater kayak. And just to this day, I still love paddling. I love water, but I've gotten older. I've gotten slower. I've lost several friends doing that. And um, and and so I, I, I kind of slowed way down whenever I became a father. But that is that is something that still pulls me back pretty hard and i'll probably get back in the boat at some point just not to the level i was paddling i was doing some dumb stuff you know yeah i guess our, our mortality faces this it seems like it's a little closer in the mirror than what it used to be yeah right all right so funniest moment you've ever had in the outdoors if you can recall one jeez man i spend so much time outside and we have so many <laughs> that's gonna be a tough one isn't it yeah that i have to really and i i've even smoked that one over for a bit uh I just, I mean, there's a lot of times, like, the hardest laughs I've had have been when it's so bad. I, I can remember uh, we trained with a bunch of guys in North Carolina, uh, just some really hardcore search and rescue guys out of Haywood County. I mean, Haywood and Henderson County, man, props to those guys. They're awesome. Uh, but we were freezing. I mean, just absolutely freezing. And I don't even remember why. But I remember laughing so hard that my face hurt. My eye, I mean, like you couldn't tell I was crying because it was it was like 38 degrees. It was absolutely as cold as it could be and not be snowing. And it'd been that way for days. Uh, our camp had been ransacked by a bear. I mean, it was just like just calamity Jane of like just one just like one thing after like you don't ever say, well, what could happen next? Because it will yeah, happen. Because it you will. Know, I don't ever say that. And so I just remember laughing with that group of guys in the pouring rain with a pack that was probably twice as heavy as it should have been because it was waterlogged. Like everything was wet. I slept in a, a soaked. I mean, I had full pack covers on all that stuff and my sleeping bag still got wet. I remember sleeping in full like Gore-Tex gear inside of a down sleeping bag and Golly, man. trying to make it through. But, but we shared, we shared a laugh and just shared the misery and that made the misery that much lighter, you know? So, so I, I have to think about a specific, I remember laughing. I don't remember what it was about, but I remember the laugh, you know? Yeah. So is that uh next question and last question actually is the most humbling situation you've had something that uh, humbled you? God, I've had many. Uh, I think if you're not being humbled on a regular basis, you're either with the wrong people or you're doing the wrong things. You're not doing enough, you know, another tough one, huh? No, it's, it's not that tough. Um, I'm humbled to be around the people, to be around so many excellent people. It, it, my, my philosophy has been to be the weakest link in the chain. And if I'm the weakest link, then I have a good idea about the strength of the chain. And I'm also the one that knows that it's up to me to do most of the work. 
I'm routinely the weakest link in the chain with the people that I'm around. So I'm humbled all the time at their knowledge, at their expertise, at their skill. I was just, I mean, literally before uh, we came on here, I was talking to Jeff back and forth and, um, and we're humbled so often by the situations we're put in where we see families in dire, dire needs. They're missing loved ones. And, and like, you know, I got, a, I got a beautiful wife and great kids and all this stuff. And you can't find humility in that service of others at their time of, of greatest need. Then you're just not a humble person. Like you just, maybe you can't be touched in that. Uh, so, so for us, um, we get regular humblings, or I do personally, I do. And, uh, yeah. and I'm grateful for it. I, I think, I think humility is a driving factor towards success and in, into personal development. And if you're not being humble, then you're probably not doing it right. Well, man, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you taking time to get on with us. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I know on our, our listeners are going to hear some similar themes that we, they hear from us regularly, but man, it's, they've also some great new information too. I really appreciate your time. Man, I'm happy to do it. Anytime you guys want to come down, man. I'd, every time we get together, we like having y'all down. So you just come down anytime and, and we'd okay. love to hang out some more. Sounds good. And so hey, tell her, tell everybody where to get in contact with you all and check your training out, check your knives and all that good stuff. Seknives.com. E-S-E-E. Echo, Echo, Sierra, Echo, Echo, knives.com. Uh, Randallsadventure.com. And then we're on all the social medias, uh, even on TikTok now, begrudgingly. I, can't I saw that, that, man. I How's know. that going for you? I tell people to tell your kids we're on TikTok. I, I feel like we kind of have to be where our, where our people are. Our current audience maybe not be on, may not be on TikTok, but our future audience will be. And, and yep. so I'm trying to go, go there to meet them now. Right. And, uh, and, and, uh, so we're just trying to meet our people where they are. All that's me. So if I don't respond to you like super fast, it's because I'm the only guy doing it, but I yep. will get back to and you. And you're in the field somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of the yeah. time. All the time. Yeah. A lot. So everybody will have the links that Shane mentioned in the description of the podcast. So check them out. Click those links for me, please, please click those links and check these guys out. They're good guys. So thanks again, Shane. Appreciate it. Hey, you, thank you, man. Y'all take care. All right. And that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Blinds podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Blinds School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.